For some of you, what I have to say will be a little redundant, but I know that we have people that have not been in any of these chapels because this is your night to go to school. So I would like to repeat some things that I've said in previous chapels this week. First of all, next uh, Friday night, that's a week from this week on the 17th of March, we'll have a special concert here with uh, Steve Adams and his sons. And it will be an event, and I want you to be a part of that. Steve Adams is a songwriter and musician. Uh, he works out of Nashville. His, his oldest son is, uh, is a music composer as well. And so uh, you're going to enjoy them. We had him at our uh, alumni banquet at the General Assembly, and it was like camp meeting. Uh, he understands you, and uh, he understands and he appreciates what's going on here at Nazarene Bible College. See, he's the uh, author of It's All Because of God's Amazing Grace Till the Storm Passes By. Some of you may know Doug Oldham, and he plays uh, with Doug Oldham. They do concerts together, and he's a little bit of the style of Doug Oldham as well. So look forward to that. Following the concert, uh, we need to celebrate. You know, Nazarene Bible College in, in the last few weeks has accomplished a big goal in that we have received accreditation from the Higher Learning Commission of North Central. So following the concert next uh, Friday night week, we will have a, a reception over in the Student Union building, give you a chance to celebrate uh, the fact that when you graduate, it's going to be an accredited degree from North Central. We've been accredited by ABHE, so we'll have dual accreditation, and the advantage for you as students is transferability. And it was a dream of my presidency that at least by the time I graduate this class, I'll put in a diploma in your hand that carries North Central accreditation. So let's celebrate that on that evening following the concert. And then uh, I also would like to mention that as we anticipate my retirement after 12 years here, and so, for some reason when we turned 70, and I did a few days ago, they say, here's the door. And, and so, uh, so I will accept that and walk out the door at that point. But anyhow, uh, we are anticipate, anticipating the fact that our Board of Trustees will be in here at the end of the month and we'll be electing a new president. And we just want God to have his way. We believe Nazarene Bible College is on track and we want to keep it on track. And we know that leadership is important for that to happen. We don't want to tell God what to do, but we do want to ask God to do what he thinks is right. And so we're going to have three weeks on Friday noon of fasting and prayer here in the chapel. There will be scripture read, a short, brief uh, beginning of that service, and you can pray at the altar as long as you would like. And the simple prayer is that God will have his way in the selection of his leadership. I believe that, uh, that uh, our ministries, our churches will never rise any higher than its leadership. You know, water can't be lifted any higher than its source. And uh, also, I believe that the spiritual life of your congregation, of any institution, is important upon the leadership of uh, that person who is in charge. So let's be praying that God will have his way. Well, here we are in the midst of the T.W. Willingham Preacher of the Year lectureship here at our campus. And how blessed we are this week to have our speaker, Dr. Herbert McGonigal. Uh, for those of you who have not heard Dr. McGonigal yet, you're in for a special blessing tonight. He was the president of the Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, England. He is the visionary behind a program that is impacting a lot of people today and that 
that you can go to Manchester after you've completed a degree here and uh, you could uh, ultimately get a PhD and the degree would carry uh, the name Manchester University but it would be a theology degree that is directed at his college and he is the visionary behind that. It is a, it is a place that Wesley is uh, almost walks the halls. More than that, he knows Wesley as well as anyone I've ever known. He has given tours to people through Epworth area in the Wesley country. He has been made a, a board member of the Epworth uh, Society. And so you're going to be in for a special blessing tonight as Dr. Herbert McGonigal comes to preach. Dr. McGonigal, once again, we welcome you to the pulpit of Nazarene Bible College. Thank you, Dr. Sanders. A great delight to be here. I especially want to express my thanks for the very kind and gracious hospitality I have had from everybody here, and especially from the President and his wife. Reflecting on it, it seemed to me that Dr. Sanders, Mrs. Sanders, you, you may be a republic, but you know how to entertain royally. So I thank you for that. A couple of years ago, a colleague of mine went down from Manchester to London to preach. Sunday morning service in our capital city, where the host minister was a friend. Quite a good congregation. And the service was over. We did, he did the usual thing. He went to the door and uh, stood with the pastor, uh, shaking hands. I like doing that, saying hello to people. And people came out and said to my colleague, thank you. Uh, God was with us, uh, that helped me, God blessed me, things like that. Until, along the line came one little man. He didn't look happy, he wasn't smiling, he didn't shake my colleague's hand, and he said rather sourly, that sermon left me cold from start to finish. But he must have gone back into the church, because he came along the line the second time. And he still wasn't smiling. And he still didn't look happy. And he still didn't shake my colleague's hand. And he said even more sourly, if I was confused when you started, boy, was I more confused when you were finished. Well, can't win them all, but... Uh, he must have gone along the line again because he came the third time. And, yes, he still wasn't smiling. And he looked very unhappy. And he didn't shake my colleague's hand. And he used a very British expression, but I think you'll understand it. He said, I think that sermon from start to finish was a load of rubbish. By this time, my colleague was getting a little interested, wouldn't you, in this little man? So he said to the host pastor, he said, uh, who is that little man? I mean, you know, does he come here often? Is he, a, <laughs> is, he, is he a member of your congregation? To which the pastor said, oh, I hope you're not offended. Um, don't mind him too much. You see, he is a, he's a little simple. 
and he just repeats what he hears other people saying. So, <laughs> okay, you're very quick. I give you, I give you nine and a half out of ten. Nearly everybody got it. Now let's do something important. Let's read scripture. Uh, toward the end of Romans chapter 7. In fact, verse 22. Romans 7, verse 22. And then moving in to the opening verses of chapter 8. And whether you're following in your own Bible, or whether you are listening, this is the word of the Lord. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so, he condemns sin in this. He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And for his word, we give thanks to the Lord. 8.2, we just read, chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. Do you know, there are more references to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 than in any other chapter in the entire Bible. More references to the Spirit, who He is and what He does, in Romans 8 than anywhere else in all of Scripture. And for that reason, we are using tonight the title, The Pentecost of Romans. This is Paul's great chapter, the greatest the fullest in the entire Bible about the work of the Holy Spirit in redemption. God's plan 
and purpose and application of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine. Paul's Pentecost. The Pentecost of Romans. And the first thing we have to understand is this. The context in which you find chapter 8. It actually is very, very important. I want to show in a minute that what is found in Romans 8 could not have been written earlier in the letter. You, you couldn't take the contents and transfer them to any of the earlier chapters. Why? Because the plan of Romans is very, very important. The plan, the outline of this great New Testament book, the great heart of Pauline teaching and theology and understanding. The letter where more than any other he lays out for us in a systematic manner the great gospel of redemption. The plan of the letter is very important. When he gets past the, the opening greetings and the invitation, he gets right into things at chapter 1 and verse 17. Martin Luther's great discovery verse that the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. I don't have time tonight to tell you they, it would actually take too long. The wonderful discovery that, that Luther made in that verse, telling us how he wrestled over it for years. He had been appointed to teach Romans in Wittenberg University. He was troubled by verse 17. He thought if it means that God is righteous, then I know that already. That's no help. There's no gospel. If it means that God requires me to be righteous, that drives me to despair. And then one day, he says, as he read, as he studied, he said, I suddenly discovered it means the righteousness of God transferred to my account when I believe in Jesus. And he adds, I felt as if I was reborn and I had gone through open doors into paradise. I had discovered a gracious God. There are 57 volumes of the works of Martin Luther. And that is the only passage I can find that is the closest. Well, it is a personal testimony. And from the next verse, the revelation of righteousness in verse 17, the revelation of wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And for the next two and a half chapters, Paul lays out the clearest, longest, fullest explication of the doctrine of human sinfulness found anywhere in the book of God. Don't you find it interesting that the longest Pauline letter about redemption lays such a solid foundation in the doctrine of sin? And Paul is not an optimist about human nature without God. When did you and I last carefully read and study Romans 1 and 2? It sounds very up to date. Paul is protesting against the postmoderns of his day with all their optimism about human nature. Passage after passage, two and a half chapters to lay out the doctrine of universal all-pervasive sin until he comes to his great conclusion in chapter 3 that every mouth might be stopped 
and all the world become guilty before God. If Romans is the great letter about the good news, it begins with the bad news. But you see, folks, in order, in order to understand the good news of the gospel, in order to grasp the good news, Paul begins by telling us the bad news. And by the time we get to the middle of chapter 3, we're convinced that we're sinners. We're lost. We're undone. We're in need of God. We're in need of grace. We're in need of mercy. We're in need of Jesus. We're in need of salvation. And then he goes into chapter 4. And he uses two great Old Testament examples of Abraham and David. Examples of what? Of how God justifies sinners by faith even in the Old Covenant. Chapter 5, the great Pauline chapter which compares the two Adams. All that was undone for us in the first Adam and all that is restored to us in Jesus. Not just the second Adam, but the last Adam. You get into chapter 6 and he moves on. Not only what Christ has done for us, but what Christ is doing in us. And chapter 6 comes to his great climax in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law. You are under grace. There's a very famous incident in British history in the days of King John when the, the nobles and the earls of England forced the king to sign a famous declaration at Runnymede, which we call in English history Magna Carta. All our fundamental laws in our country go back to Magna Carta. It's the great document of freedom. Romans 6 is the Magna Carta of the New Testament. It's the great declaration of our freedom from sin in Christ Jesus. Chapter 7 is the chapter of the personal struggle. And then comes chapter 8, the Pentecost. See the point? Paul could not have put Romans 8 in earlier. It doesn't belong. You are brought from universal sinfulness through justification by faith, through sanctification by faith in chapter 6 to chapter 8 on the fullness of the Spirit. So I say to you tonight that the context, the context of Romans 8 is all important. It's a bit like, for all tonight here who are students, it's a bit like laying out a, a systematic theology, beginning with homartiology, the doctrine of sin, going through soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and reaching pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit, in chapter 8, the Pentecost of Romans. That is the context of Romans 8. Now look secondly at the contrast of Romans 8. That's why we read a bit of chapter 7. What does Romans 8 contrast with? It contrasts with chapter 7. And uh, some months back when I was preparing for this lecture series, this preaching series, I wanted particularly to move into this area 
Because among various evangelicals, this has been a battleground since the Reformation. With a couple of friends, I sat a couple of years ago in a convention, and preacher after preacher told us that all your life, all our lives, we will have to live in Romans 7. He said, the apostle lived there. Do you imagine you can be better than the apostle Paul? There weren't too many amens in that convention, but it was, that was their persuasion. Now, I've been persuaded for a long time that they were totally wrong. Not just as a matter of theology, but as a matter of biblical interpretation. For it is very important to understand what Scripture is saying. Romans 7 has a place. And we have to see Romans 7 as the contrast. Very quickly here or two. Romans 7 from verse 14 to the end, is about slavery. Listen to verse 14. I am carnal, sold under sin. Now that's the best translation of those words. Paul uses a very particular, strong form of the Greek word for not just being a slave, but sold into slavery. Paul doesn't say in, in, in that verse that occasionally whoever the man is falls into sin. He says seven, this verse, in the experience of Romans 7, the person is sold under sin as a slave. Now contrast that with A2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done what? Has made me free. See the contrast. Slavery in chapter 7, freedom in chapter 8. Any English translation brings that out. Now, tonight as thinking intelligent men and women, where do you think God wants his people to live? I mean... Thank you. In the, in the slavery of chapter 7 or in the freedom of chapter 8? Or I'll put the question another way. If Paul, as that, those convention preachers said, if Paul and all Christians have always and must always live in chapter 7, then what is chapter 8 about? If Paul lived in Romans 7, presumably nobody lives in Romans 8. For Paul was a pretty good Christian, you know. I mean, he, he really didn't know the Lord, didn't he? So it is, it is slavery in chapter 7. It is freedom in chapter 8. Ah, but there's another contrast. Chapter 7 is all about defeat. Listen to this, verse 15. I do not do, and I'm going to translate this very literally, I do not do, what I want to do, I do the thing that I hate. Did you hear that? The thing I'm doing, I don't want to do it. But I can't stop myself. And the good that I would like to do, I cannot do. That's defeat in any language, Greek or English. 718. Literally, I can will to do what is right, 
but I cannot do it. That's the language of defeat. The language of chapter 8, in contrast, is victory. Listen to 8.4. That the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. In other words, Paul says in verse, in verse 4, the requirements of the law are being fulfilled in all who are led by the Spirit. The dark language, the language of defeat and slavery in chapter 7, contrasted with the light, the language of freedom and victory in chapter 8. Now, you remember we said a moment ago that in Romans 8, there are more references to the person and the work of the Spirit than any other chapter in the Bible. And then comes the most amazing contrast. From Romans 14 to the end, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned once. There is not one single reference to the Spirit between Romans 7 verse 14 until you get to the end of the chapter. And yet there are some who would tell us that Romans 7 14 to the end is the normal experience of all Christians and in it there is not a single reference to the Holy Spirit. Do you mean to tell me that Paul could have written about the normal Christian life with no mention of the Holy Spirit, the thing is, is a contradiction. The victory, the victory of Romans 8. So we've seen the context. We've seen the contrast between the darkness and the slavery of chapter 7 and the victory, the joy, and the freedom of chapter 8. The third and last thing we're going to look at is the content. What is Paul actually saying to us in this great chapter, which for tonight we are labeling the Pentecost of Romans? We've seen where it is, its context. We have seen its contrast with chapter 7. So now, what is Paul saying to us? What is the word of the Lord coming to our hearts tonight as Christians from this great and glorious chapter with 20 references to the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The first is freedom. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. We mentioned that. Verse 4 is fulfillment. The just requirements of the law are being fulfilled in us who no longer are walking in the flesh but in the spirit. Some years ago, I invited Dr. William Greathouse, while he was general superintendent, to come to us in Britain on a preaching tour because I discovered he would not be coming in jurisdiction as a general superintendent and I'd wanted our people in Britain to have a chance to meet that fine Christian leader and great preacher, 
Dr. Greathouse. He did come for uh, 17 days, and I had the pleasure of preparing his itinerary. We got him into Wales, to England, to Ireland, to Scotland, and quite a lot of services. We, uh, we traveled a lot as I sort of chaperoned him over the country. In one of his publications, uh, Dr. Greathouse has an illustration on verse 4, and because he told this when he was a general superintendent, you know, I, I just take it, I mean, general superintendents tell the truth, don't they? So, I mean, it has to be right. He talked about a, he talked about a couple who got married. And the marriage was not very old until the woman began to discover the kind of man she had married. Not the kind of man she thought he was when they first met, but as soon as the ring was on her finger, man, he turned out to be a right tyrant. He dominated everything in the home. He dominated their life. She never had a chance to have a say or a word. He just ruled the place. But he went further. They'd only been married a couple of months when he, he, he presented her with a, like an agenda. And he, he had written it all down, how he liked his meals prepared, <laughs> the things he liked to eat, the things he didn't like, which we, she should never prepare, uh, the times when his meals should be on the table, not before time, not after time, but on time. How he wanted her to drink. Oh, there was a whole, a whole long list of do's and don'ts. And she discovered that she was in a marriage that was governed not by love, but by law. Her husband was a right old legalist well as being a pain in the neck. <laughs> but <laughs> she was a very obedient lady. But life with that man. This is Dr. Greathouse's story. Life with that man was, <laughs> was no joy. And Dr. Greathouse said, after about five years of this bondage, the husband died. Now, you want to say amen, of course, but I mean, you're not, you shouldn't really say amen, but <laughs> he died. And she was a widow. She was free. Quite a number of years later, she met a very different type of man. They fell in love, and they were married. And the second marriage was so very, very, very different from the first marriage. An utter contrast. This was a marriage of two people who loved, respected, esteemed, and cared for one another. And the second time around, this woman was blissfully happy. She'd been in the second marriage about 10 years or so, when one day at the back of an old wardrobe. What do you think she found? Yeah. She found the list that the long dead tyrant had given her. 
in this new marriage of love. She'd forgotten all about it. But she got it out. And she began to read it. And all the bad memories came flooding back. But she read it. Do you know what you suddenly realized? She thought, everything on that list, and far more, I am now doing, not because I have to, but because I want to. That's the difference, you see, between under the law and under love. Under law, it is a legal demand. In a fellowship of love, it is the delightful response of the heart. And Paul says in verse 4, what strict requirements of the law we could not fulfill, we are now fulfilling because love is the fulfilling of the law. In this great gospel of grace, we are not under law. We are in grace. And by the love of God and our, our response is a response of love and service and fulfillment. Look at the motivation of the Spirit in chapter 6. He says to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. It all depends on the things on which we set our hearts and set our love and set our affection. To be carnally minded to have the mind and the heart set on the things that please us, the things that are selfish, the things that belong to the world. The outcome of that is death. Oh, what a condemnation that is on all life that is lived apart from God and apart from the Holy Spirit. All of the world's ambitions, all of the world's understanding of gain and success and elevation and promotion and all the rest, if it is outside the will of God, it will ultimately end in death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What motivates you tonight? What motivates me? We are meant to be motivated by the Spirit, to set our mind, to make the great purpose of our lives, to love and serve the Lord and let the Holy Spirit guide us and direct us. Motivation. Motivation is all important. You and I know people who are motivated by many things. The Spirit-filled Christian is to be motivated by the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, we are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Then the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Oh, friends, we ought to take a moment often and meditate on those wonderful verses. To think that in my little life and in your little life, that your heart and my heart becomes the throne of God. And that our lives can be filled by God's gracious Holy Spirit. That the omniscient Spirit, that the eternal Spirit, that the almighty Spirit of God that brooded on the waters of the chaos, 
that the Spirit that moved in the womb of Mary to bring forth the incarnate Word, that same Holy Spirit can come and dwell in your heart and in mine. That our hearts, once so cold and empty and sinful, can become the dwelling place of God. The Spirit of God dwells, dwells in you. The peculiar, wonderful glory of Christianity is the doctrine of the indwelling God. Not just that God loves us, not just that God is with us, not just that God is near us, but that God indwells us. Oh, I wish I could take you tonight, though I would choose the summer. I would take you to one of the loveliest parts of our country, the southwest of England in the green land of Devon. Devon is a beautiful country. In about 1858, one Sunday morning, a Devon farmer, lots of dairy farmers, by the way, they produce wonderful cream and things in Devon. Devon farmer was going to church. By the way, I don't know about over here, but where I live, uh, and I grew up in a... You can always, on a Sunday, tell a farmer coming to church from all the other people. You know how? Well, the farmer is the man who looks uncomfortable in his Sunday suit, and he, he can't wait to get home to take it off. This um, farmer was going to church, and he was carrying his Bible. Along the road came a man whom the farmer didn't know. He just happened at that time to be... Collins was England's most best-known lecturer in atheism. And he was holidaying in Devon. And he saw the man, and he saw the Bible. And he thought he would have a... You know, farmers are not very clever, so he'd have a little bit of fun at this man's expense. So he stopped. He said, good morning, sir. He said, where are you going? And the Devon farmer said in lovely broad Devon, I be going to church, I go. I be going to church. I said, Collins, that's very interesting. And what are you going to church for? Oh, he said, I'm, I'm going to church to worship God. Worship God. Well, said Collins, there's something I've always wanted to know of you Christians. The God you worship, is he a great big God? Or is he just a little tiny God? That Devon Christian farmer thought for a moment. As far as I know, he'd never sat in a class of Christian theology. But there are none so wise as those who are taught by the Holy Spirit. This was a good man who knew God. He'd read his Bible. Is God big or is God small? Well, sir, he said, as you see, it'd be like this. It'd be like this. He said, my God is so big that all the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And my God is so small that he can live in my heart. Oh, what a profound answer. I've never met or read a theologian who could give a better answer than that. God dwelling in us. We are to be indwelt by the Spirit, quickened by the Spirit. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is not a spirit-filled Christian here tonight who hasn't had the experience of that so often in their lives. We come to God maybe at the end of the day, maybe in a day of disappointment and frustration, you know, one of those days when just everything seems to go wrong. And suddenly God comes and you feel renewed and restored and strengthened and blessed. And you can almost feel the, the power of God within you raising you up, dispelling the cloud and restoring you to a wonderful, quickened by the Spirit. This 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Victory in the Spirit. Verse 14, controlled by the Spirit. All who are led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, are the sons of God. To be led by the Spirit is to have the Spirit in charge of our lives. To be led of God. When a man or woman is first born of God, I mean when they are first converted, very soon there's a great change in their life. They, they, there are places they no longer go. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit no longer leads them there. There are things they no longer do because they are no longer led. They are under a new direction. They are under a new spirit. The spirit has taken control and all the sons and daughters of God are led by the spirit. And of course, this truth has wonderful ramifications in all areas of our lives and especially if it's the matter of calling and ministry and things like that. If you are wondering, if you are seeking, if you are praying, if you're asking advice on what to do, Remember that primarily it is your privilege to be led by the Spirit. To have the Spirit himself guiding you and directing you. Verse 15, a new ownership of the Spirit. You did not receive the spirit of bondage to fear. You received the spirit of adoption. What a lovely title for the Spirit. That we who once did not belong. We who were not a part of God's family have been adopted into the family and the Spirit witnesses to our adoption. That's a verse worth meditating on. We have been brought in and the Spirit is called the Spirit of adoption. He seals us into the family. He guarantees the relationship. We are no longer on the outside. I remember the first time I came to this country... 1968, in the days, Dr. Sanders, when the church had something called the NYPS. And I was district uh, NYPS leader in Scotland. And I came over here for the convention in Kansas City. And the old NYPS office uh, uh, set me up a, about a 13-week preaching tour. And I saw a lot of the country very green in those days. I mean, greener than I am now. And a whole lot of things about this country I didn't know. I had, a, I had an experience coming into your country I will never forget. 
I flew from Glasgow to Reykjavik in Iceland in a, in a snowstorm in an old propeller plane. And I remember we were jammed tight. It was full of students. We were jammed tight like sardines. When we got to one of the New York airports, we couldn't land, so we had to go to another one. I think we ended up at Kennedy Airport. Anyway, when we, um, when we got out of the plane and uh, we're going to pick up our luggage, we came, we came to customs. It's changed since those days. And, of course, most of the people on the plane were American citizens uh, coming back home. A small minority, of which I were a part, were not American citizens. So we had to pass through different gates. The majority of gates said, American citizens. <laughs> the other gate said, and I tell you the truth, Aliens. <laughs> Aliens. I'm British. We set up this place for goodness sake. <laughs> Three quarters of the people in this country are of good British stock. And I am an alien. <laughs> you know, makes you feel like something from uh, outer space. Now they say visitors to America, which is a little bit more friendly. <laughs> Actually, Paul speaks in Ephesians that we all once were aliens, doesn't he, to the commonwealth of Israel. It's not a very nice feeling. It's not, I felt very strange. I was a stranger in a strange land, and America branded me an alien. But you know, in grace, in Jesus, we are all adopted into the family. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our new citizenship. The sons and daughters of God. The very next verse says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit. We call this in our Wesleyan tradition and in our Wesleyan theology the doctrine of assurance or the doctrine of the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit makes witness with your spirit, telling you, assuring you, convincing you that you are a child of God. In that great hymn by Charles Wesley, Arise, my soul, arise. Cast off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears, before the throne my surety stands. Oh, what a guarantee, my name is written on his hands. And then further down the hymn it says, The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. I don't have to presume, I don't have to wonder, I don't have to hope. By the ministry of the Spirit, I can know I'm no longer an alien. I'm no longer on the outside. We have been brought in. Hallelujah. We have been adopted into the family of God. And those are just some of the things that Paul says in Romans 8 about the Pentecost of the Spirit.
and a very simple closing practical word. If some of us tonight feel that in our Christian experience we are living in Romans 7, God wants us to change our address.